rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One is offered as a podcast at rte.ie forward slash drama on one. And of course, here on RTE Radio One on Sunday nights. In 2006, Drama on One broadcast its series Seven Deadly Sins with plays from Anne Enright, Rebecca Miller, Edna O'Brien, Jennifer Johnston, Bernard Farrell, Maura Vakanthi, and Eugene O'Brien. Tonight's play is named after tonight's sin, Lust and is written by Bernard Farrell. Lust is performed by Mark Lambert with an introduction by the author. There are seven deadly sins, Captain. Gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, pride, lust and envy. Seven. It is normal for writers to be asked what they are writing these days. And recently, when I have said that I was contributing to a series on the seven deadly sins and that I had been chosen to write about lust, the reaction of friends and fellow writers has been very interesting indeed. Some have nodded wisely and said, Yes, I understand that choice. There is a lot of lust in your plays and, I assume, in your life. It's a worrying reaction, one you hope the police don't hear about. However, the second reaction is even more worrying. Lust, they say, all surprise. Well, I must say that is an amazing choice for you. The inference being, what would I, of all people, know about lust? So one reaction tells me that I'm a sex maniac and the other says that I'm as limp and as passionless as a wet rag hanging on a clothesline. Neither, I hope, is true, but I do have a great interest in this particular deadly sin, if only because it always seemed the most attractive and was also the most condemned. It was, to me and to many of my generation, the great moral challenge, how to simultaneously enjoy it and avoid it, and how to survive this dilemma without either going to hell or going insane. And that is why the offer to write about it was an offer I couldn't refuse and why I so readily accepted the challenge to write lustily about lust. Lust by Bernard Farrell The naughty lady of Shady Lane Has hit the town like a bomb the back fence gossip ain't been this good Since Mabel ran off with Tom Our town was peaceful and quiet When I was growing up in the Ireland of the 50s, the one thing we were not allowed to think about was lust. Day in and day out, our parents, our teachers, our priests and our government repeatedly told us to stop thinking about it. And if any of us actually managed to stop thinking about it, we were constantly reminded that if we started thinking about it again, we were to stop at once. On Mount Sinai, God may have given Moses ten commandments, but as far as Ireland was concerned, he only gave him two. The sixth and the ninth. And what was so special about these two? Well, those were the ones that dealt with sex and temptation and immodesty and adultery. In other words, with lust. And they were also the ones that seemed amazingly attractive, offering the kind of indescribable pleasures that even in your darkest hour would bring an immediate smile to the face. 
And, of course, that was why we were beaten in school, shouted at from the pulpit, growled at from the confessional and ballyragged in our homes if we even looked like we were thinking about lust. Which was probably why, as we grew up, we all laughed with such hysterical relief at confessional jokes like, Well, my child, since your last confession, have you been entertaining any lustful thoughts? No, father, they have been entertaining me. (laughs) The problem for all of us was that lust, although it was a deadly sin, defied definition. Nobody seemed to know exactly what it was, or if they knew, they weren't giving us the full story. Sometimes we were told that it was a blessing from God because without it, none of us would even look at the opposite sex and the entire human race would die out. But just as we began to welcome this good news, an angry shout would suddenly make us jump out of our desks, warning us that lust was also something that had to be controlled, corralled, subjugated. It was also a fire that smouldered within all of us, and, if fanned by the winds of temptation, it could so easily burst into a deadly inferno, and before we knew it, it would rage uncontrollably through our whole system, taking over our minds and our bodies, making us behave like animals, destroying our lives and all those around us and infuriating God the way he was infuriated by, for example, Sodom and Gomorrah. And did we remember what happened there? And before we could ask what exactly did happen there, we would be given the answer. Lust was what happened there. And every one of the inhabitants of those doomed cities paid the price. And did we remember what happened to Lot's wife because she tried to look back at lust in action? And that was just a measure at how angry the sin of lust made God. And as we went through life, we knew that lust was something not to be taken with a pinch of salt. Thus it came to pass that we were constantly and graphically told how dangerous lust was, but never told exactly what it was, and the unspoken rule was that we were never allowed to ask. All we needed to know was that it was a deadly sin. But young people are more curious than that, and I remember that one year when our school went on an annual retreat to the Jesuits in Rathfarnham, one of my classmates, in a general assembly of questions and answers, dared to ask the priest to please tell us all what exactly lust was. There followed a deadly silence. And then he told us what it was. It was, he said, a thing like a big express train that was out of control, thundering through the night at 60 miles an hour on the wrong track, heading for disaster, with only the brakes of a bicycle. This was indeed a frightening image, but unbeknownst to him it was also a very attractive one, because every one of us knew that the greatest thrill in our young lives was to cycle downhill, fast as we could with the wind in our faces, no brakes on our bikes, and no way of stopping except by expertly rubbing our shoes against the front wheel, and hoping to God that we didn't overdo the pressure and go over the handlebars. So even if we still didn't know what lust actually was, we now knew that if it was anything like that, then it was certainly something worth looking forward to and maybe even going to hell for. But if there was a reluctance from the powers that be to actually tell us what lust was, there was certainly no difficulty in telling us where it could be found. 
On this question, there were no deadly silences, no evasions, no beating around the bush. The answer was always immediate and as clear as crystal. Lust could be found everywhere. It was in the cinema. It was in books and magazines. It was in advertisements. It was on the wireless. It was scrawled on the walls of toilets and was spewed out of the mouths of corner boys. And that was why we all had to be constantly on our guard. Because it was out there, in front of us, at every turn. However, as we considered this roadmap of lustful destinations, there was one thing that we knew for certain. And that was that none of it was true. The truth was, in Ireland of the 50s, lust could be found nowhere. It wasn't in books and magazines because, with a fervour that was closer to perversity than protection, our moral guardians simply banned everything they saw or read. Literary reputations, international acclaim or artistic accolades meant nothing. If there was even the slightest hint of lust, the novel or the poem or the article was immediately banned without explanation and without appeal. The cinema was even worse. Because here we were first titillated by what we could not see. Here we were almost given a strip tease of what we were about to be denied. Here we were almost given all the clues to the presumed depravities before, suddenly, with the finesse of an abattoir worker, the offending scene would be slashed, chopped and cut from our view. Gary Cooper could walk into a room, maybe to have his dinner, see Grace Kelly standing there smiling, but if he then closed the door and turned to face her... He could suddenly, for no reason or with no explanation, be in different clothes, days later, miles away from her, out on the prairie, leaving everyone in the cinema to fill in the missing sequence with our lustful imaginations, usually deciding that the last thing Gary was really doing at that moment was riding his horse. Or if Ava Gardner absentmindedly tinkered with the top button of her blouse, she could immediately be chopped from the story leaving us all to assume that, within minutes, she had herself stripped naked and was running starkest through the house in the throes of sexual abandon, begging for action. And poor Sid Charisse may have been a great dancer, but she only had to lift her leg and suddenly she would be sitting somewhere with her mother, playing cards, with her legs tucked modestly under the table. And at each cut and chop, the cinema would be filled with whistles of protests and howls of derision, thereby informing the authorities that no matter what they did, they were losing the battle. The message was not getting through to us because clearly lust was popular. Lust was what we had come to see. Lust was fun. But the chopping continued and we continued to be forced to use our vivid imaginations until, on one historic day, a pal of mine told me that he thought he had found a way to get around the censoring and, if he was right, we could all be experiencing, at first hand, the joys of lust without any interference from anyone. Breakthrough was that he had observed that every Friday afternoon in our local cinema, 
the historian Glasthul, the projectionist would leave his projection room, walk down the fire escape outside the cinema, his arms laden with rolls of film, and he would then lift the lid of a dustbin, stuff them in, put the lid back on and go back up to his projection room. And what do you think those bits of film are? My pal rhetorically asked our open-mouthed group. They're all the band bits that he has to cut out of every film. We stood in silence, contemplating this. Gary Cooper at it with Grace Kelly. Sid Cherise actually dancing. Ava Gardner totally unbuttoned. We asked him what he had seen so far. Uh, nothing yet, he said. I thought we'd all check the dustbin together. But we must never tell anyone. I have to trust you all never to say a word about this. We all swore on our honour, knowing that the gang that lust together, trust together. The following Friday, as soon as the projectionists walked back up the fire escape, we were over to that dustbin ransacking it and collecting what seemed like miles of colour and black and white film. And all through the weekend, we sat by day in Presentation College sports field, holding the film up to the sun, examining it frame by frame. Determined that if we didn't go blind one way, we would happily go blind another. By night, we lay in our beds, torches in hand, projecting the film onto the wallpaper, always hoping and praying that Lady Lust was just a frame away. The following Monday, a group of red-eyed youngsters assembled again to cross-check what we had seen. Well, we had all seen boring people and boring fields and horses and houses and cartoons. But had we seen one inch of flesh? or a peep of cleavage, or a length of leg, or even a half-passionate kiss. Not a sausage. Slowly and despairingly we realised that what we had collected from the dustbin were merely the cuts the projectionists had made to fit in with the timing of the main film, or pieces of film that threatened to clog up his precious projector. Our disappointment was funereal. And I know it sent many of us back to check the frames again and again, just in case we missed something. For my own part, I know I kept one length of dustbin film that was entitled Fantasy in Your Garden, in the vain hope that it was all about nymphs or damsels or even Amazon women frolicking through the undergrowth somewhere. But all it was about was garden gnomes. So, if even a hint of lust was not to be found in literature or in the cinema... Was it anywhere else? Well, there were the school's cultural visits to the National Gallery, later abandoned because, like alcoholics turned loose in a brewery, we spent all of our time gazing in disbelief at the nakedness of Venus or the brazenness of David, or in big paintings of heaven and hell, we spent all our time ignoring the saints in heaven and only examining what all the devils were up to in hell. Back at school, those of us who had spent money buying postcards of our favourite works of art were given detention, and eventually the ruling came down that all future visits to the gallery were forbidden, even in a private capacity if we were wearing the college blazer. Thus the embargo continued, 
And while we were allowed limited access to almost all the other deadly sins, lust was nowhere to be seen. And then, miraculously, we all discovered that it could be heard. This was a revelation that none of us ever expected and we suddenly realised that for years, as we feverishly searched for lust, all the time it had been there right before our very ears. On all our radio stations, from the sponsored programmes on Radio Erin to the hit parade on Radio Luxembourg and on records, singles, EPs and LPs, lust was everywhere to be heard. And how did we discover this? We heard about it in great detail from the very people who were busily telling us to ignore it, to avoid it and to resist it. In tones of the greatest seriousness and couched in expressions of dire warning, they told us that there were songs out there that not only encouraged lust but actually described it. In schools, in kitchens, from the pulpits and on retreats, we listened open-mouthed to this news, silently begging for more details, for chapter and verse, singer and song, lyric and lust. And we got them. Men with grave faces, parents with expressions of the gravest concern, nuns with faces of tortured embarrassment recited the names of songs and told us that these were not the innocent songs of entertainment, these were songs of lust. Songs like Music, Music, Music or The Garden of Eden or I Am Walking Behind You and we were warned under pain of sin and eternal damnation not to listen to these songs or to learn the words or even to whistle them and certainly never to sing them. And we sat there in school, at home, at mass, listening to the litany of song titles and we promised faithfully to ignore each and every one and... As soon as we got outside, we gathered in small crowds and began to forensically examine each word of each song to see exactly where the lust lay and wondering how in the name of God had we managed to miss it for so long. Put another nickel in, in the Nickelodeon. All I want is loving you and music, music, music. We recited these words and then looked at each other in puzzlement. Where was the lust there? Then we'd move on to the next forbidden song. When you walk in the garden, the garden of Eden, with a beautiful woman, and you know how you care, but a voice from the garden, from the garden of Eden, says that she is forbidden. Do you leave her there? We repeated these words over and over, but eventually we were left in absolute bamboozlement as to where the lust lay in these Frankie Vaughan lyrics. It seemed to us that all there was was a stupid question at the end that had only one obvious answer. Do you leave her there? No, you do not, unless you were a complete idiot. And so 
The whole hide-and-seek aspect of lust continued through our young lives and we yearned for definition and clarity. And then, one day, a Christian brother actually picked out one of the forbidden songs and slowly explained to us that the real evil in the lyrics of I'm Walking Behind You was that the songwriter was referring to a man who harboured lustful feelings for a married woman and was now lustfully offering himself to her on her wedding day as an alternative to her rightful husband and that the song was really telling us that adultery was permitted and that lust was not a deadly sin. And having heard this explanation, we all pooled our pocket money to buy the record and played it over and over, hearing Eddie Fisher sadly singing, I'm walking behind you on your wedding day and I'll hear you promise to love and obey, but if things go wrong, dear, and fate is unkind, look over your shoulder, I'm walking behind. And apart from the bizarre notion of some guy spending his life walking behind her, day in and day out, in hail, rain or shine, I don't think any of us, even at our age, regarded the song as anything but tragic and sad and full of hopelessness. And absolutely devoid of lust. So what was our Christian brother, and all our moral guardians of that time, talking about? Well... I now know that they were all merely reflecting our national, insular attitude to sin. That lethal mixture of confusion and fear that, in time and with power, led to our repressive and dangerous obsession with sex. In trying to protect the young and the innocent from genuine evil, they adapted the scattergun approach and, at a whim, tried to ban sex, to cut it from our lives, to make us fear it, suspect it, loathe it and deny it. But all the time, knowing that they were on the losing team, they knew that they could never defeat the natural interest in it and curiosity about it. And in this ensuing confusion, they began to see the enemy everywhere. Suddenly lust was appearing where lust never lived. They saw it in harmless movies, in beautiful literature, in innocent advertisements and in romantic songs. Their obsession with seeing lust in song lyrics would eventually reach a perverted peak in 1958 when the wonderful Leslie Caron in the musical Gigi suddenly came under scrutiny. While this musical was taking the world by storm and its film version was collecting nine Oscars, we here in Ireland were busily examining one song, thank heaven for little girls, for signs of lust and perversion. And somehow we managed to see lust where there was innocence and to find sex where there was fun and we promptly moved to protect the entire nation by banning this song from our national airwaves. Each time I see a little girl of five or six or seven, I can't resist a joyous urge to smile and say thank heaven for little girls. And that is probably why, of all the seven deadly sins, lust was both the most feared and the most desired. Throughout my adolescence and teens, the confused messages and hilarious advice about lust continued. Once in sixth year, a visiting priest, another Jesuit, lectured us on the post-school dangers of sex, sin, lust and lasciviousness. And as he ducked and dodged through this whole sexual landscape, he eventually uttered what he saw as the final conclusive catch-all warning. Remember, boys, he said. Remember what Matthew said. That whosoever shall even look at a woman to lust after her hath already committed adultery with her 
in his heart. He then allowed a dramatic hush to settle, and in that silence my best friend whispered to me, Might as well go the full hog then. Might as well get hung for a sheep as a lamb. And we both exploded into laughter. A grim-faced lecturer silenced us with a look and asked, What did we see funny about this? We assured him that there was nothing funny about it, that we were ashamed of our nervous hysteria. And we silently prayed that he hadn't heard the reference to the sheep, or he would surely have thought that we had bypassed him and moved into the Premier League of lustful perversions. But maybe we should have told him the joke. Maybe we should have protested that there was fun to be seen here, and we had seen it. And maybe we should have said that, as things were going, a whole nation was in danger of closing in on itself, because we had lost that ancient Irish gift of laughing at sex. Maybe we should have asked him if life was sexually healthier in pre-Christian Ireland, the Ireland of the Druids. And why could we not ogle at and appreciate the wonderfully explicit sexuality of the Sheila Nagig stonework? And why could we no longer study and enjoy the sexuality of Brian Merriman's The Midnight Court? And once and for all, as in days gone by, could we not just give this fear of sex and of lust a holiday? And in doing that, could we all not now laugh at the common schoolboy theory that God really created sex as a joke? And when he saw that we were all taking it so seriously, he turned it into a sin. But of course we said none of these things. We remained silent and in time we left school and moved out into the world with a warning still ringing in our ears that lust was a deadly sin and still wondering where we could find it. But it was so easy to find once the shackles of living in Ireland were removed and we moved out to other countries and to other cultures which did not fear but embraced a little lust. And suddenly the Ireland of our youth and its obscene obsession with sex and its Taliban-esque techniques for imposing its rigid doctrines seem far away indeed. When fear was replaced by freedom and moral terrorism was replaced by common sense, lust suddenly lost its importance, its edge, its obsessiveness. And slowly those who set out to impose the fearful disciplines gradually lost their power. And now today, lust is at once everywhere and it is nowhere. Both Penthouse and Playboy are now on the top shelves and moving downwards. Literature has been healthily released from the repressive bonds and since the internet arrived, sex in films attracts as much attention as a Disney cartoon. And are young people of today without a sense of sin and without the lure of lust missing something? Or was there an attractiveness about how we lived in a repressive Ireland when lust was a serious, deadly sin? Did it all give us a joyous bonding, a cause to unite us, a common mission to challenge the imposed fear? And the answer is no. There was nothing joyous or healthy or rewarding about it. And our Ireland of today is all the better for not having that mindless oppressiveness. And if lust, in those forms, ever returned to this country, that indeed would be the gravest, deadly sin of all.
That was Lust by Bernard Farrell, performed by Mark Lambert. Sound supervision by Mark McGraw. Lust by Bernard Farrell was directed by Camille Annan. And to listen back to Lust and all editions of the Drama on One podcast, go to rte.ie forward slash drama on one. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. rte.ie forward slash drama on one.